You're listening to Ideas at the House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. On the podcast today, we have another live recording from Antidote Festival, a weekend of ideas, action and change. August 2018 was an astonishing time in Australian politics. Yet another leadership spill consumed the national media, confusing and infuriating voters and leaving us with another new Prime Minister. With eerie foresight, at Antidote we had already programmed an event with three of Australia's leading political reporters, Phil Khoury, Nikki Sava and Peter Hartcher, called Stop Blaming Political Media. I joined them in an attempt to figure out just what the hell has been going on in Australian politics and how much the media feeds into the process it reports on. I'm Edwina Throsby and I'm the head of Talks and Ideas here at the Sydney Opera House. And I've got to confess to mixed feelings during the unmitigated spraying shitstorm that exploded out of our national parliament. (laughs) a couple of weeks ago. On one hand, I was, along with the rest of the nation, frankly appalled by the behaviour of the so-called grown-ups who we've elected to represent us. But on the other hand, I thought, wow, this is going to make our session so good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you win some and you lose some. But the reason I kind of thought that was that because the thoroughly unedifying events of uh, the last week and a bit um, really raise a lot of the sorts of topics that I want to talk about here today, including the role of the media in reporting on and perhaps directly participating in our politics, especially in major events, and the ethics surrounding this involvement, both from the point of view of ensuring a professional separation from the events that you're reporting on, and in terms of the responsibility that the fourth estate hold to inform the electorate and ensure democratic duties can be conducted in an informed way. And certainly the panellists who are on the stage here with me today have done their bit for this. Nikki Sava is a columnist for The Australian and a regular on the ABC's program The Insider. She was also senior media advisor to former federal treasurer Peter Costello. Peter Hartcher is the political editor and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and his long-running column in the Saturday paper is a must-read for political junkies across the nation. And Phil Khoury is the political editor of the Australian Financial Review. He's known for his frank commentary, and I think it's worth uh, highlighting some of, the, um, some, of, some of the bits from last week, which include his description of Peter Dutton as being as popular as Boyles, <laughs> and his characterisation of our political leaders as an influx of Muppets who increasingly infest Parliament House. Please make them very welcome. Now look, I know that the question I'm about to ask has been asked a lot in the last week, but I still don't understand, and I suspect that a lot of the audience still don't understand what happened. <laughs> Seriously, what happened? What, what, did the, what, what were the Liberal Party doing? Nikki? I think it was very clear what happened. I, I think that um, Tony Hab. Abbott and um, a band of insurgents outside of the party, um, including very prominent um, media players, had embarked on an exercise over a long period of time to destroy Turnbull. And uh, whether that also destroyed the government was immaterial. So what happened um, last week could have happened the week before or the week after 
It could have happened on energy, it could have happened on same-sex marriage, it could have happened on religious freedom. It didn't matter what the issue was. There was some issue that was going to come into play that would enable them to mobilise the forces to actually, um, you know, carry out their plot. Would and give, give them a trigger? Provide the trigger. Um, perhaps um, Malcolm pulled it on at the wrong time when he was at a low ebb. But um, really, I don't think um, that mattered so much as it would have been either in a week or in a few weeks or, or in a couple of months. It was just inevitable. So, Peter, do you reckon this had been brewing since Turnbull's election? Well, in the mind of Tony Abbott, certainly, yes. From the moment Abbott lost the Prime Ministership, uh, this has been his preoccupying subject and his motive force. It's the reason Tony has been getting out of bed in the morning, apart from the cycling. Um, <laughs> in the case of Peter Dutton, it's a more recent uh, phenomenon, but um, I think, well, I did, and I, I, I think Phil did, and I'm probably uh, you too, Nikki, saw it coming uh, because part of our job function is to be in close contact with the main political participants. And, and you can see the flare of ambition and you can see uh, the intent developing in people. If you, if you, if you keep you know, a relationship with them, you can see, see them change. And it was clear that Dutton, the ambition was flaring in him uh, and he decided that he was going to strike. And that was clear months ago in Dutton's case. Uh, and that really was the, that was the defining moment. It was when Dutton decided to challenge that everything else flowed. Uh, because Abbott, while disruptive, wasn't going to challenge and wasn't a participant. He didn't have the numbers. Uh, he wasn't a candidate, rather. Um, and nobody else was going to begin the challenge. Bishop had sworn she'd never challenge Turnbull, uh, and she didn't. Um, it, was, it was Dutton or nobody. And um, so the moment well, that so became obvious, and we, and we started writing it, um, it was around the time of Longman, wasn't it? Well, that, that pushed, that, that set the timing, uh, I think. But, I mean, I'd written in March, and Turnbull got very angry about this. I wrote in March that the party, uh, that Dutton was, pre was preparing to challenge this late, late, later this year, I said. Mm. And that um, the party was reconciled to the fact that Turnbull wouldn't be leading them to the next election. Uh, it was exactly true, but that's not because I'm a genius. It's simply because I was in touch with the, with the, mm. the participants. I mean, it is an extraordinary situation where people's problems at work become so engrossing that, mm. that it brings around the kind of turmoil and turbulence probably unseen since 1975, you know. Um, at what point, Phil, did you realise, you know, when it was all kind of coming down very recently, that what had been discussed and rumoured for many months was actually on? Um, it, it happened on the Friday last week, didn't it? It was the Thursday of the preceding week mm. was when my, my, my realisation set in that it wasn't... Um, it didn't matter what Turnbull did on the energy policy. You know, he was backpedalling at 100 miles an hour trying to, you know, set a piece, and it, was, it became apparent then that it was no... It was, didn't matter what he did then, he was... They were going to... You know, Dutton was serious. So that's when it crystallised for me. For me, it went from... And I was probably a bit later than most to pick it up, um, but it went from being a story about policy to a, a story about leadership. 
at the AFR, our audiences, you know, corporate audience, energy policy is hugely important for our readers. And so my focus was on this energy policy. And maybe naively in hindsight, I was still, you know, riding through the prism that, you know, this policy could be fixed and that would, you know, settle. That that was that was the key issue. But I think it was that Thursday I realised that oh, that that's, didn't matter. As Nikki said in her opening remarks, it didn't matter what it was about. They were going to come at him. There was always... A, a nugget, uh, like a kernel, if you like, of, um, of malcontents you know, around Tony Abbott, but it was broader than what they called the triple A's, the Abbott, Abbetts and Andrews. And I knew, and I knew, but, they, but they didn't have the critical mass. This is the difference with this one. You asked what was it about. The other ones, all the, other, the other three prime ministers who got knocked off, there was at least a reason given. We were going to lose the election because we were down in the polls and we had someone more popular who was going to lift us in the polls. This didn't have that. Uh, they actually went from some... They went to a, an election-losing position. They, they went, this is a reverse thing. So that shows it wasn't motivated by a reason. It wasn't motivated by a survival thing so much to me. And, it, and at no stage through all that madness of that week did someone stand up and say, this is why we're doing it. Julia Gillard, when she knocked off Kevin Roach, she said the government had lost its way. She gave a reason, even though... It was, um, no you know, one believed it. But still, you know, <laughs> when, when Turnbull knocked off Abbott, we've lost 30 news polls, we can't win, you know, we need proper economic management. With this one, no one ever got up. Dutton never got up and said, I'm, I'm, I'm moving against Malcolm because of... He didn't give a reason. And, and, well, and I, well, and I think that's, sorry, Dutton, that, that's why this one's just yeah. even more confusing than the other ones. Dutton had always said that um, people would know when he had lost faith in Turnbull and what Turnbull was doing because he would resign immediately from the Cabinet. He did not do that. Mm. And um, the thing that did it for him was the Longman uh, by-election. And I spoke to... Because I was doing Insiders the next morning, so I stayed up very late that night and um, was trying to ring around a few of the Queenslanders to find out, you know, what they felt. And they were in an absolute rage about the 10% uh, drop in the primary vote for the Liberal Party. And they'd come to the conclusion that Turnbull was toxic. There was no way that they were going to uh, win those seats or hold on to those seats. And basically their views, even though uh, Tasmania had been good for Turnbull, they didn't give a stuff about Tasmania. They said the election will be won or lost in Queensland. So that's where we've got to focus. Oh, you used the word toxic, which is a word, Peter, that you used in media a lot um, in interviews after the spill to describe Peter Dutton and during the spill to, to, to describe Peter Dutton. Why was he, in the end, out of all of the people that were clustered around Abbott, why was he the one that ended up, you know, putting his hand up or going forward? Well, the specifics were that uh, he had positioned himself within the conservative faction of the Liberal Party as the natural leader. Uh, but how? Chiefly through the way he conducted uh, his portfolio and relentlessly positioning uh, to the right in um, a sort of a, a bellicose uh, way. Um, people who haven't met Peter Dutton don't believe this, but in person he can be quite pleasant, charming and even witty. Uh, no one believes that if you, if you haven't met him because he's worked so hard on making his public persona the hard man uh, and the champion of the angry reactionary right. Uh, now, in the actual conduct of the most important responsibilities in his portfolio, this, the, the immigration intake um, and keeping it non-discriminatory, he's actually uh, done a more sensible job than his media persona 
and his, his you know, wanton right-wing uh, provocations would suggest. But he's worked very hard on making sure that uh, he is the, the, the rightmost person and, and most outspoken member in the Turnbull cabinet. Uh, and the, the numbers, uh, at least in that faction, fell in behind him. That was the principal, uh, the principal reason. But touching on the point Phil made, this was about this. This was the least justifiable of the leadership coups that we've all despaired over in the last decade, uh, because it wasn't about electability. So, if you're not going to improve your party's prospects, why are you putting yourself through the convulsion and putting the nation uh, through the disruption and the democratic despair of doing all this stuff? If it's not about improving your party's prospects, what the hell is it about? And and this is your original question, Edwina. The at core. My view is that it was about the egos of the personalities directly involved, and it was about factional indulgence. In other words, we see a continuous degradation of the political system. Even the abandonment of any fig leaf electability is no longer an issue. If that were the issue, Julie Bishop would be Prime Minister today. She's not. So the abandonment of even the flimsiest of fig leaves as to why they're doing this, and as Phil said, not one Liberal, even to, to this day, has been able to come out and articulate a reason for the challenge and the change. So I'm afraid what this tells us is that our system, uh, and this is true of both parties, and we can talk about Labor if you like, because I think Labor's only about five percentage points away from doing the same thing. Mm. Uh, the political parties, having gone through all the trauma and suffering and self-inflicted pain of the last decade, have failed to learn the lesson, and they're becoming yet more indulgent of their own factional and personal uh, fetishes. But of course the events didn't work out the way the plotters had planned <laughs> and, and um, I wonder what you think Phil um, Abbott thought after that vote. Oh, he would have hated it. He would have absolutely hated it. I mean, he, he, he despises Scott Morrison and Julie Bishop as equally as he despises Malcolm Turnbull. He holds them equally, equally accountable for what happened to him in 2015 probably with good reason, because they were you know, very passive participants in, or in some, some cases a little bit active participants in Abbott's demise. So his freezer list was actually had Julie at the top, then Malcolm, then Scott, because he felt Julie had betrayed him as a deputy. So the, this whole idea, the whole purpose of this push was to actually get, if he couldn't have it, it had to be a conservative, and that was Peter Dutton, because Peter Dutton was his guy. Um, and so it was a failure. It was a failure from their perspective because, yes, they got rid of Malcolm, which they, in retrospect they're claiming is some sort of victory, but they put in Scott. Um, so Abbott's vengeance is not yet served. It's not fully... It's not served. And you notice he's been saying he's, he's, he's not retiring at the election. There's a very strong feel inside the, the Liberal Party and from all sorts. Some would surprise you. Just think it's time for Tony to go now too because unless... The same way Labor was managed, managed to heal up. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, but the same way both Julie Gillard and Kevin Rudd left and enabled Labor to, to get on with it again. And you know, they've had a very unified and successful five years as such. Um, well, Tony's still there. Well, one or two of the provocateurs is still there. This is going to go on. So the tension's going to be this. There's a lot of people who wish he'd go, but he's not going to go because um, I still think he fancies himself um, on the other side of the next election. I really do. I think if the They've blown up, they've, you, know, they've, you know, Dutton's sort of pretty much finished, I think. You never write anyone off, you know, but he's blowing smoke. Bishop's gone, she won't be hanging around. Turnbull's gone. 
if Morrison loses very by a lot, you know, he's going to be, he's going to struggle to hang on and guess who's left again? So it's, um, you know, um, the best opposition leader in the world. That, that's, what, that's what he's thinking. That, I can tell you that's exactly what he's thinking right now, that he's in with a shot now as on the back of this. So, um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Nikki, Phil makes a really good point there, which is that the Liberal Party have really burnt through a bunch of talent in the last two weeks, right? There's the, it, it, it is hard to see who might be there to have their hand up. I mean, how do you think the Liberal Party is going to recover from this? I, and, 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 I, and I will add to that question, please don't say they just have to unify, because, like, of course, <laughs> but, but, like, in real terms... Well, uh, it... Look, I, I, I don't know that they're going to be able to. Um, it's hard to see that they will win the election or that they will even put in an honourable showing at the election. And I um, believe, and I've, I've spoken to people about this, that I wouldn't be surprised if the Liberal Party split after the election because I can't see a leader um, who can come through, who can unify that broad church. I mean, there is a schism there now, and uh, I've actually written that I think probably, it's sort of flippant, but not, not completely, uh, that someone like Andrew Hastie would end up um, forming um, a separate political mm. party, the Conservative Liberal Party, and someone like Tim Wilson would probably lead the Progressive Liberal Party. Uh, and just um, on what uh, Phil was saying before, I think um, Abbott's grand plan was um, he knew that he was never going to be able to regain the leadership even if he destroyed Malcolm. So his next best option was to have Dutton. And he knew that Dutton would lose the election so he would be able to come through after as leader of the opposition again. Well, I, you know, I think that's fantasy land, but I seriously think that was in the back of his mind. So I, I think the Liberal Party is now broken, but I don't see how or who is going to be strong enough to be able to put it back together again. It's interesting because I think um, what's happening in the Liberal Party in Australia is being reflected in what's happening with the Democrats in the United States. You've got a sort of, you know, a party that's kind of seeking meaning, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a situation that a lot of the party stalwarts never saw coming or never thought would, would happen. Do you think that there are... What, what sort of comparisons do you find, Peter, between our two countries in terms of that ideological struggle? And is it sort of universal and of this time? Well, the, the uh, contrast, and it's an obvious one, between the Democrats in the US and the Liberal Party here that the Democrats in the US are in opposition... Sorry, I meant, I meant the Republicans. Right. My bad question. No, that's OK. <laughs> Um, because, you, because you're right, the Democrats are in the sort of disarray that the Liberal Party will probably find itself in after the next election. Uh, but you, don't, you, ca you cannot write off uh, the Liberal Party even now simply because you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of the equation. You don't know what Labor's going to do to itself between now and Election Day. Uh, right? <laughs> well, they, they came very close in the lead up to Longman. I That's mean, right. They walked to the edge. They were ready to go and build. That's right. Yeah. They were ready to have their own leadership coup with Anthony Albanese challenging. Uh, and that would have been just as bloody and ugly. So um, the, what's happened and, and the influence of the US here, uh, i just make two brief points. One is that um, this rise of uh, angry right-wing populism that we see in the US, uh, Britain and uh, Western Europe, or Europe more broadly, uh, follows 
uh, in a very um, cause, causative, cause and effect way, the economic collapse uh, that here we call the global financial crisis. Uh, that was a devastating event uh, economically, socially, politically for those countries. Here we don't have those objective conditions. Uh, so what's our excuse? Um, our excuse is that we're uh, uh, fashion followers, we follow American trends even if the objective conditions are actually mm. completely different. We've had 27 years of unbroken economic growth. Uh, there's been no, not one bank has failed. Uh, Australia has become uh, per capita uh, one of the two or three richest countries in the world and so on and so on. Completely different picture. Inequality here is real, but nowhere near the inequality in the US. It's just two different universes. Uh, so the, despite that, the fadism and the Australian political classes uh, fetish, fetishization of American politics and following of it, every trend has taken the conservative wing of the Liberal Party to where uh, Donald Trump, to, well, well taken it to fantasize about being where Donald Trump has taken right, the Republican Party. I think that's an Party. important distinction, the fantasy element. Fantasy, yes. Right. So, and you can see it, Tony Abbott's, for example, mm -hmm. position, is, he's a, a, a leading indicator. He was the Prime Minister who conceived and signed off on uh, Australia's uh, carbon emissions targets in the Paris Accord, and yet he was the first Australian mainstream politician to demand that Australia withdraw from the Paris Accord. So you can see there how far Abbott moved to the right, and you, can, and you know who his role model was. He was it was Donald Trump, and the, many of the Conservatives in the Liberal Party are, are, are making that same trajectory to the right, and that's the similarity. I was uh, I'll just quickly add to that, I was talking to Alexander Downer a couple of weeks ago, and um, he's just come back, as you know, from four years in the UK as High Commissioner there, and he said, he said, he can't believe it, he comes back to a country like this and everyone's talking about leadership and polls. He said, the only reason you're doing that is because you're bored. <laughs> no, he said, because there's that, you know, you, in, relative to the rest of the world, there's, this country doesn't have half the problems that, you know, where this well, stuff is so, really taking That's so true, it's, yeah, it's the, boredom, the boredom yeah. thing, in my view, is a direct outplay of complacency. Yeah. Uh, Let's import mm. what's happening over there because we need a bit of and what, uh, So if, if our cause is complacency, then you have to wonder what's the solution. But it's interesting because um, that boredom could work on two levels, right? It could be the boredom of the politicians who, um, you know, are having to sort of play out their own personal psychodramas on a national stage. Or it could be also the boredom of media who, who you know, kind of ran out of things to do. And this has been something that I think, you know, this, this was actually a sort of starting point for me when I was thinking of this panel, is that that's something that throughout the turmoil of the last decade of Australian politics, um, political journalists are often accused of being uh, complicit in leadership spills by reporting on them, you know, by amplifying them, by being obsessed more with who's in the poll position rather than, rather than you know, what they should be reporting about in a responsible democracy, which is policy. You know, like, people want to read about that. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, I think, um, interesting to think in the context of the recent events because I think that media's complici complicity in recent events took on a different shade. And I'd like, actually, if we can, to play a little clip from Chris Yulman on the Today Show, uh, the Thursday before last, who really um, got up and, and called this out. So if we could get that playing... Who's talking to Peter Dutton? Well, there'll be a lot of people inside his party who are talking to him. Who's talking to him from outside his party at the moment? 
Who outside his party, who are influential figures in Australia, is talking to Peter Dutton and telling him what they believe that he should do today? Because they're not just commentators, mm. they are players. They have crossed the line. And that needs to be pointed out because people need to know everyone who's involved in this today because it's the, the Australian country that's at stake. So, abrupt end. Um, but, but Chris Yulman there was pointing the finger very, very explicitly at a handful of journalists from News Limited, from 2GB, um, who he absolutely directly called out on air for having um, lobbied Peter Dutton to, um, and encouraged Peter Dutton and to, to take this action and also for a much longer period of time um, for destabilising the Turnbull government. And that was a shift, I think, in, in our political media. This, this very, very foregrounded idea that, as, as Yulman said, they'd become players. The media were no longer commentators or observers or reporters. They were players in the story. Chris, uh, sorry, Nikki, do you think that Chris was fair enough? I do. Um, I think it was um, a very unwelcome and a very new development. I mean, media has always played a role in leadership challenges. I mean, politicians use journos and journos use politicians. That's not new. But what was different here was that we had a very hard core of people, as I said before, determined to destroy uh, Turnbull. Um, Abbott was the main one there. Um, aided and abetted by his former Chief of Staff, uh, Peter Credlin, by Alan Jones, by Ray Hadley and by Andrew Bolt. And the four of them all happened to have very powerful media platforms. And they acted in concert. They acted together to try and uh, bring it about and they succeeded. People have described it as a form of political terrorism. I think that's right. I think they embarked on this exercise. They were not going to be deterred uh, regardless. And it went way beyond any role that any traditional media might play in a leadership challenge, I think. It's interesting you say, though, that they have powerful media platforms. And I'm not disagreeing with you, but mm. if you think about Sky After Dark, as, mm. as Chris called them. You know, we're not talking about a program with... A, I mean, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny but viewership. They have 50,000 viewers, but um, Sky is wallpaper in Parliament House. Everybody watches, um, everybody listens. They talk to the politicians every day. And then Jones and Hadley themselves have also quite, quite big audiences. So... When you put the two together, it is quite a powerful unit that was out there working on Abbott's behalf. Are those journalists sort of in communication together? Do they? Oh, they're I, don't, not I don't think they need. I don't, well, yeah, they're not journalists. And this is the thing when you say, well, <laughs> no, but it's an important. Uh, they're not no, journalists. It, 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 and it's, I think it's a really important differentiation that people, a real misconception. Now, when you say political media, I'm a member of the Canberra Press Gallery. I rock up to work every day. Editor says, "What do you got for tomorrow?" I said, "I don't know." You know, I've got to fill a hole. In, I've got to fill a hole in a newspaper, right? My 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 job is to find either report on what's happening. If there's nothing happening, find something, find out what's going on. Be objective. Report both sides of the story. That's sort of my basic role every day. I don't have sides. I don't play favourites. I don't really care, to be honest. You know, I just my job is to tell my readers what's going on in Parliament. That is a completely different role to what. Um, 
Yeah, the, the, the people Nikki just named, they don't even live in Canberra, they're not members of the Canberra Press Gallery, they're commentators, they're players. I mean, not only do they, were they cajoling people on air, they're actually on the phones. V Jones was hitting the phones, as was Credlin, and directly telling MPs, you've got to get on board. I mean, they were... They were they, yeah, if I did that, I'd, I'd have to quit. You know, I'd breach every ethic I'm supposed to adhere to. And so they, they just run a different race. They, they are part of the story. They're not the reporters of the story. We're, we're just the poor schmucks trying to, you know, keep up with this and write it and report it. So I just think it's a really yeah, no, important differentiation because we always get lumped as one big homogenous blob, you know, yeah. the media, and it, it, it is a massively diverse thing. I think that yeah. is fair enough because mm. being a journalist comes with a set of ethical responsibilities, which, in fact, if you think back to things like the cash for comments scandal, you know, I mean, mm. part of John Law's defence was, I'm not a journalist, I'm an entertainer, right? So I think that, yeah, you know, and sometimes yeah. as, as we get more people like Peter Credlin who are given a, a sort of, you know, an on-air role because of her connections within the party and her sort of, you know, political experience. And I mean, I think that there is a place for that in... Yeah, but, sure. but 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 you're absolutely right. I think, what do you think, Peter, about this sort of increasing tendency that views become news? Well, I'd, I'd certainly um, agree that these people that we're talking about, you know, Alan Jones, Ray Hadley, Andrew Bolt, um, the Oz as a masthead, the Telegraph as a masthead, uh, they, they take a partisan stance and they don't even pretend that they're objective. They just hammer away. They, and the particular voices, the individuals that we've named, uh, they're not journalists and they don't even claim to be. I mean, they are ideological provocateurs and they're proud of it, and political provocateurs in a partisan cause. So that is not journalism. Uh, um, but I, what, I, what I would challenge is the concept that this is new or that it's worse. Mm. A couple of quick examples. A lot of Australians boycotted the Australian newspaper after the dismissal of the Whitlam government because they saw it as playing uh, such a partisan, underhanded and deliberate and direct un role in the unseating of the Whitlam government. Uh, the Australian does it... Uh, um, let's, let's look at another example. Um, Julia Gillard's prime ministership. You'll remember 2GB, Alan Jones, Ray Hadley uh, and the others on that station campaigned for weeks to get turnout to an axe the tax rally, an anti-carbon tax rally on the lawns of Parliament House in Canberra. Uh, they were providing buses, they were doing all of this, and they hammered their audiences, and their audiences, in, you know, in terms of the sheer ratings, appear quite large. They hammered that for weeks, day in, day out, provided the buses. This was time to axe the tax. Of course, that's a proxy for getting rid of Gillard as Prime Minister, just as energy policy was used last week as the proxy to get rid of Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, and you'll remember, Alan Jones, we have to put Julia Gillard in a burlap sack, take her out to sea and dump her. Uh, this, this, it, you could not have got a more vehement, vicious, concerted campaign and with a particular point, which was that rally. Now, you know, the, uh, the Australian was running a frantic campaign against Gillard and especially not only Gillard but against her building the Education Revolution, the school hall building program. Uh, the Telegraph was running hard against the Labor Party. They were, this, was, this has been going on for years. This is not new. Um, of course, what it did reveal, and why, they haven't, why the 2GB crew haven't attempted, uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, 2GB is owned by Fairf controlled by Fairfax Media, which is also my employer, 
Um, what they haven't tried is they haven't tried the rally again. And here's why. Because after all of that effort and all of that intensity and vitriol, they, the turnout for their great rally was fewer than 5,000 people. It was nothing. Uh, the counter-rally the week after had 50,000 people. It didn't get any publicity, really. It got mm -hmm. scant publicity because it was, you know, a counter. Who cares about the counter? You want the, the, <laughs> the news is the, the, news is the, is the disruptive yeah. element. So what I'm trying to say here is that um, this is an in-house phenomenon of uh, the political media complex. These voices, uh, particularly the shock jocks, derive, in my view, please, you know, no. let's have an argument, but if you like, but they derive their real power because of the power that politicians impute to them exactly. and, the, and the rest of the media exactly right. impute to them. So a state premier of New South Wales is told by their media advisors, you have to get on, you have to appease Jones, you have to do whatever. Julia Gillard tried to appease, appease Jones, went on his shows. Kevin Rudd tried to appease the Australian and the Murdoch press. Of course, it doesn't work, and they, they're always going to come after them when it suits them, and that's exactly what happened. But it's only that imputing of the power to the shock jocks and the rest of them that gives them the actual power. If the entire political class decided to just ignore them and shut them out, it would be the 5,000 people on the front lawn, a completely meaningless, trivial detail. Yeah. So they'll, they'll be loving this. <laughs> they will be loving this. This their, conversation. Their, their, well, no, just the whole the fallout, outcome, the whole fallout yeah. there yeah. now. I've been real I meant the conversation yeah, broadly, yeah, not they're... like on this stage. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're probably not watching this. So. But, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, as you say it, Peter, it's like, well, yes, of course, but, but why doesn't that happen? I mean, I mean, is it again, does it come back to the boredom thing? Does it come back to the sort of need to report something? Does it come no. back to... Does it come back to... Look, can I go back to when I, when I started at the start, when I said I didn't really pick up on this thing in the first week? That's because it wasn't really there. I, I, I'm pretty good at picking up on leadership things. We've covered enough of them now. <laughs> and, uh, and, well, for example, when, when they bumped off Abbott, a month before they bumped off Abbott, someone, a, a Liberal MP who I didn't know really well but I trusted absolutely, just pulled me aside at Aussie's coffee shop one morning and said, Turnbull and Morrison's foot soldiers are doing numbers. And I said, what? And he said... And there'd been no talk of leadership. And I said, really? And I, and I made a couple more calls and we put it all on the front page the next day, you know, because I knew the guy was right because I'd shorted up. I got ripped to shreds by Virginia Trioli on ABC TV the next morning. You know, here we go, the press gallery's making it up again. You know, bloody, bloody, blah, you know, what are these foot soldiers who are? They were laughing. They were, they were literally laughing at me and my story. And a month later, he was gone, right? So, yeah, yeah you, you, know, you know when these are reported and when they're not. With this one, I just... As I said, you know, Pete was saying, it was building, but you, it wasn't there. It didn't have the critical mass. And what I was reading, in, in the, in especially in the Australian, by certain reporters, it, I couldn't reconcile with what I was trying... You know, I was trying to find out, is it there? And I, I just couldn't reconcile it. And that's because it was being generated at that stage. It was still being generated by the outsiders. And we saw that in the last week when they were trying to get the numbers to sign that petition. They didn't have... The, they never had the numbers. And... It was, it was manufactured. This one, the others were organic. We, we, I remember the night very clearly when Kevin Rudd got knocked off. They, they, as soon as word went out it was on, they nearly tore the doors off the hinges, you know, to, to vote again in the Labor Party. It, was, it just happened. And they, they were all the same. When Turnbull decided to move on Abbott, it was locked in. Uh, and, and when Rudd, you know, got back at Gillard, it was locked in. It was swift and it was, you know, brutal. But this one 
was a messy, messy execution because they didn't have it there, and they had to force it. They had to force it from the bottom up and get the numbers. And that's why this was a. They weren't ready. They weren't ready. They weren't and, ready. They they yeah. didn't have the numbers ready. They mm. didn't have any decent people mm. um, who were actually counting numbers and trying to put it together. Um, well, they only uh, had to count up to 43. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, it was, you know, fingers, oh, but this is what I mean, that there were fingers reports. and toes, they ran out yeah. of fingers there and toes. There were exaggerated reports as to the extent of this. When yeah. it, the, 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 those reports themselves were actually but designed to create the crisis, create the... I was the, talking the, to people um, during the week, both who had voted for Abbott and stuck with him until the end, and uh, people who had uh, obviously voted for, for Turnbull. And, you know, they have a very clear recollection in their head of when, when it was over for Abbott. And the day that they keep nominating was the day that he announced a knighthood for Prince Philip. Yeah. Right? That is what really said to them. <laughs> and that was Australia Day too, so there were lots of people at barbecues that day having <laughs> yeah. the conversation. Barbecue stopper. Yeah. They all remember where they were when it happened. Like this guy was saying, I was driving along and I heard it. I was with my <laughs> wife and I said, what the? You know, I can't believe. <laughs> and um, so that was a seminal moment, right? And we had the spill and they gave... Um, Abbott a, a few uh, directions and he was going to, you know, say, yes, I'm going to be better, I'm going to do this or that, and he never did any of them. And six months later, he was gone, and even those who voted for him at the end knew he was gone. They knew it was over, and in many ways, they were relieved. This was very different. It was, you know, Turnbull's strike was very well planned. It was very well executed. Um, this was a chainsaw massacre. You know, they, they <laughs> it was horrible. Just, it was horrible. Um, and, and we've had those, sorry, you go, sorry, just those complaints from the women who were being bullied. bullied and, that was, and, and, yeah. and all these. Were they credible, those complaints? Yes, because there were people walking yeah, around this yeah. petition. You know, threatening pre-selections, threatening careers, you've got to sign. But all the young libs, they were yeah, very yeah. young lib types, you know, walking around with pretty pink folders. They were saying, you know, sign here or else, pretty then much. We know, on, so the, on, the, on the media role in all this, if in fact the right-wing provocateurs and the partisan players that we've been talking about, if in fact they helped to cheer this on and create the impression that it was inevitable and that there was a Dutton victory coming... If they, in fact, misled Dutton and his supporters into making a failed coup, then what have they delivered? Yeah, they failed in their missions what have they pretty spectacularly, didn't mm. they? Mm. So, I mean, one of the things that's sort of underpinning all of this, and, and, and this is over the course of the last decade when we've had, you know, so much sort of turbulence in politics, and always, or almost always, it comes back with dissatisfaction in the way that the leader's polling. Um, you know, we were talking backstage before this and saying that, you know, um, Turnbull's numbers were... and Gillard, If you compare Turnbull's numbers and Gillard's, it's like we're in a different era, and we clearly are. Um, but but at, at what point do you think we become too obsessed with, with opinion polls, given that they are about leader popularity, they're about, you know, potential leader popularity, they're about, you know... Or do, do we have too much information that, that we're kind of kicking through, or is it actually useful? Well, they started it. 
They're, they're, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't live in New South Wales, but you, you, you people know better than us how many premiers you, you had in you know, that last few years of Labor. They were all because of the polls. They're the ones who started knifing leaders because of the polls. Labor, Federal Labor was the first political party which cited the polls two years from an election as a reason to, to knife an election. I mean, I worked with Peter at the Sydney Morning Herald for a number of years and we had the old Nielsen poll, which pretty much ran every month since the 1970s, as has News Poll, uh, 30, 40 years. They're not new. We've always been doing them. Um, we weren't the ones who started not, you know, knocking leaders off because they were bad, you know, when you were, weren't within cooey of an election. So. You, know, you can't then blame us <laughs> for maybe putting a little bit more import on them uh, in terms of... Well, you're of paying for the polls as well. Well, but, you know, you always write them but up. The timing but, of yeah. the publication of the polls is mm. also very uh, relevant. Uh, mm. When, you know, Malcolm made the big mistake of saying that... 30 news know, polls. 30 yeah. news mm. polls. Um, he really it, didn't think that through, did he? <laughs> I, I tried for a couple of weeks, actually, to find out who was the person who actually totaled that up for him. Phil and, Hudson and from The Australian. He wrote it in a column <laughs> and Malcolm read it and he thought, oh, that's a good stat. I'll use it. Uh, I think ultimately <laughs> it was Malcolm, but anyway. Yeah, right. um, so, uh, yeah, that was a very bad move. But then after that, um, News Poll, which normally runs every two weeks, sometimes didn't appear for three or four weeks, but it would uh, be time to appear when Parliament was resuming when they might be together, when they might think about these things and maybe act on them. So, you know, yeah, I don't fair. think we're completely innocent. Well, we, in went these broken, we went broke and stopped polling for about a year, certainly. Well, <laughs> well I think the, uh, the, the lesson of this latest spill is that it's gone beyond that point. Mm. Yeah, the mm. political parties use the polls as an excuse. If you're an ambitious leader, you use the unpopularity of your rival to trigger your coup. But this. And that's been long the practice, right? But um, in this bill, it wasn't about electability. Uh, sure, Turnbull was doing poorly in the polls, but that wasn't the motive force. Uh, it, it, I mean, Peter Dutton, so for years now, every now and then uh, you, you'll have a poll on name your preferred Liberal leader. You know, is it Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, Julie Bishop, Christopher Pine, Peter Dutton, and so on, Scott Morrison. In, any poll where that question was asked, including uh, one last week, um, Dutton has never cracked double digits. He was outpolled by someone else. He always. <laughs> every time, every poll, it's he's cool. outpolled by someone else. Yeah. The asterisk factor, yeah. right? I think he 4%, 2%. He was 8%. five in our last, the last one we did, he was five, and Turnbull right. was like, Julie was like, 28 and Turnbull was 30 or something. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Precisely. So this is this is the this is the distinguishing one of the distinguishing features of this coup, is that the polls uh, it happened despite the polling evidence. Uh, so I think we've crossed a threshold. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. That's right. They were, they were 51, 49 behind Labor in the news poll, which is the one they all use as this, and that's pretty much even. You go into election 51, 49 any day of the year. That's just good as even. And if, in fact, John Howard was never in that good a position this far out from an election in all his four terms than, than the coalition was when they moved on, when they moved on Turnbull. So, but I think right. what, what got him, though, was mm. that was a theoretical thing, mm. right? 51, 49, when they actually had a poll in Queensland which showed mm. a 10% drop in their primary vote. That was it. Mm. Mm. 
So we're at going to give you the opportunity to ask questions yourself and I urge you to take the chance to ask these, these people your burning political questions. There are microphones on either side of the stage so if you want to start moving towards the microphones now perhaps um, uh, when we get to questions you will be first in line. <laughs> um, but I'd just like to ask before we throw open, I mean Antidote as a festival is supposed to be about optimism mm. and I think that our collective national optimism has taken a little bit of a battering out of all of this. Do you still sort of have hope in the system? Do you have hope in our leaders to get it together? What do you see? Where do you derive a sense of hope from or are you just in a great big pit of black despair? <laughs> Nikki. <laughs> I haven't fallen into the pit yet but I'm sort of right on the edge at the moment. Up until um, what happened last week, I still had a certain amount of faith that... Well, firstly, that I, I actually believed what people were saying, that they would hold firm, that Dutton wouldn't quit unless there was some, you know, policy uh, issue that he agreed with. I also believed Matthias Corman when he said he was going to stick with Turnbull till the bitter end, go down with the ship and then quit, and no-one was going to get through him. So I think um, I'm still a great believer in the system. I'm not such a great believer in the people who are in it. And what I'm really hoping, and I hear I think it's a collective responsibility on all of us to maybe do better, not just the media, but I think, um, you know, ordinary voters as well, to take more of an interest, to be more engaged, and also to actually realise that government cannot solve all your problems. Mm. And politicians, in the meantime, should not promise to do things that they can't do. So I think we need to have quite a you know, big discussion and a realignment of what we look for and what we hope for. And hopefully, you know, we might improve. But if we keep going like we're going, I'm not very optimistic at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I think the couple of problems, as quickly as the calibre of politician, it's just it's a lot worse now than it was when I started 20 years ago. In so far, it's just it's just, just just hacks from campus now. There's so many of them in Parliament. It's it's student politics games now. It, it, I remember John Howard. I had dinner with him 20 years ago. And he goes, I'm starting to worry about the, the people coming into this place. There's fewer and fewer people. You know, they're under 40 and they don't have any real world experience. You know, the, the, the staffer or the Lord, you know, the, the political staffer or the union staffer, Australia. And I think they are now running the place. So I think that's a, that's a big problem. Um, that sort of mentality has taken over. It's a game. You know, it, it's, it's a game. They just can't see outside their own little world the consequences of what they're doing. The media cycle fuels it and social media and all those sorts of things. And I think if there's anything we can do to mitigate, I've been a big. I think we need four-year terms for federal governments. We really we've needed for a long time, so they can, you know, just take a few risks, fixed terms. But I think voters need to take a responsibility too. I mean, we're treating our parliament like a plaything. Yeah, you know, the Senate's become a complete nuthouse, and um, and it might be fun electing hung parliaments or one-seat majorities, but it's damn hard to govern like that when you've. And I've, you know, we saw Gillard couldn't do it, which he had two minority in both houses. Turnbull has had to govern since the last election just to survive. He's always been under threat from someone crossing the floor. So it's fun to play around with your vote, but I think unless, unless we can start giving whoever gets in the government a working majority, 
they just they they just can't they can't do anything. They can't look at this neg. You know that, that was the last chance you had on it. That was the last. That was it. That was the final chance for bipartisan energy policy. It was the most insipid compromise there was, and you can't even get something like that up now. I would doubt very much. Nicky'd probably know when you were with Costello when you put the GST in. You imagine trying to sell that now in this environment. I don't think yeah, it, you'd have a hope. So it never happen. The quality of policy is suffering. The, the quality of politics has suffered, um, and I think you know. Collectively, we all got to do, do something about it. That's my, that's my point. So, Peter, what do you reckon journalists can do about it? Ah, that's a different question. What can I know. Well, you can answer both. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, well, I think so. Phil, you, you identified uh, John Howard's position, and Howard, since then, has uh, come back to that theme often that it's uh, a pernicious fact. But Bob Hawke agrees with him on this. The two former prime ministers both agree that each of their parties and both of their parties have become increasingly uh, sort of professionalised with a political class without any real world experience. They'll come from student politics at uni, they'll work uh, in a tra trade union or they'll work in a lobbying office or they'll work in a minister's office or an MP's office. Uh, they'll work in a, in a you know, uh, state headquarters or whatever and that gets them on the factional and partisan escalator into parliament they end up in Parliament, they play these games, because the reality that the rest of us live in, of a real world, doesn't exist to them. To them, the priority is their faction and their party. And other things just don't exist. They just exist outside their universe. So that is a, a real factor, and that is a factor about the, the behaviours, patterns, and self-reinforcing uh, sort of muscle memory, if you like, of, the, of, the, of what the political parties have developed. Um, Two quick points. What can, what can journalism do about that? Um, apart from uh, try to uh, report and by reporting uh, reward politicians who are prepared to advocate uh, good ideas and good policy, prepared to take policy seriously, uh, it's not the role of the journalistic class uh, to ourselves try to reshape uh, the system. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, much as we'd all love to be dictated for a day, um, it's a bigger system, it's a democracy, it's got many functioning parts, the political parties, uh, if, if the big parties are going to rescue themselves, they need to act, otherwise the minor parties, it's just a matter of time before we find a minor party that doesn't keep collapsing on itself, like the, the Democrat Party, Palmer's Party, uh, the Greens haven't collapsed, but they've stalled, uh, Hansen keeps collapsing in a series, a cycle of, of collapses. Uh, one day, one will break through. A political fringe party, a protest party, will emerge, and the, the, the major parties will regret it. Perhaps the Libs coalition will split. Nikki, I don't know. Uh, they need to reform. If it's complacency that's bred this, then maybe it's a crisis that resolves it. Edwina, on your point about optimism, I just offer this thought. Uh, the best, the most optimistic thought I can draw from this is that despite this decade of, you know, appalling uh, political self-absorption and self-indulgence, uh, Australia remains, the, I think, the best country in the world to live in. Uh, and, uh, and I'm reminded of the Belgian government. Some years ago, you might remember, the Belgians weren't able to, to form a government and they, they had just a technocratic administration, ran for more than a year. And um, everything went just fine. Mm. And I remember talking to... Uh, former Belgian Deputy Prime Minister at the time when this was going on, and I said, how, how is it? What do you think? What do the public think? And he, he said, oh, it's great. He said, everything's running smoothly. 
The public loves it. There's no, there are no politicians on the There's TV. No <laughs> um, it's going great. He said, in fact, it's going so well, I worry because uh, the people might decide this is a great permanent condition and underneath it, Long-term problems like national debt and other things build up and need correcting, and unless there's political leadership, that won't happen. But the good news is that, at least for now, because we have, a, we have strong independent institutions, we have states that can run without intimate direction from federal and all the rest of it, um, the country has managed to uh, do well in spite of this, uh, but it can't forever. There is something remarkably appealing about that, though, isn't oh, there? Good. Indeed. Um, so I'm going to open for questions, but I will ask. We don't have a huge amount of time left, and we all know the difference between a question and a manifesto. So <laughs> if we could keep our questions short and succinct and very to the point, that would be very appreciated. Uh, number one, please. Thanks. So do we not be as short as possible? Um, as all of you being seasoned, seasoned journalists, have you seen the change go from the reporting to be more about the individual and therefore the personality rather than the leader of the team. Uh, John Howard used to make the comment that it's cabinet, that um, you should be there as first amongst equals, whereas the, what we've seen happen in the last recent two weeks or so, it's been so focused on one individual, and typically we would expect that it should be a team that is the, uh, the result of um, good governance rather than it being an individual. I'll just, I think politics has become a bit more presidential I haven't been around as long as Peter and Nicky in terms oh, of... Oh, thanks, Phil. No, but <laughs> I'm, not as, I'm not as experienced or sage but as, as Peter or Nicky. Um, but it has... I, I think Rudd sort of changed it a bit, didn't he? The Cal Kevin 07 thing, that was really when they really, you know, for me at least, really highlighted the, the individual of it. There was a government about a, a person rather than, than a government when he fell. They fell fairly quickly uh, afterwards. That was the sort of... That was a cult almost, that period. But other than that, I think when a government works well, I mean, when... Turnbull's government was working pretty well in terms of processes and cabinet and stuff like that. It, um, but I think it's just a product of this um, this churn of leadership we're in that the individual comes to the fore more. But I don't think, it's, you know, other than the Rudd aberrations, it's changed that significantly. Well, I, I first started reporting uh, politics during the Hawke era, and was that not mm. was that not a reporting an obsession with one? Mm. One man, absolutely. I mean, yes, as you Keating. Yeah. Indeed. Keating, no, no, no. Indeed. So I, I don't, I'm not convinced um, that this is a, a new phenomenon. I, I, I mean, you know, Hawke was a national folk hero and the media w it was just a frenzy, right? I mean, hmm. so I'm not convinced this is, that this is new. No, but that, is not, that is not, that is not the, the, the element of the system that's changed, I don't think. Yeah, and I also don't think it's completely unreasonable to be interested in the character mm. of our leaders as well. I think There's it's that. essential. Mm. But I think um, because there is greater polarisation in media between left and right, um, people are, you know, taking up their corners, presenting their version of events, everybody's yelling at one another, and I think it's very hard for people, you know, to distinguish between, you know, what is right and what is wrong and what's truth and what's fake news. So right. Oh, wow, that's a whole new I session. Think, I think that's... <laughs> it is a whole new session, but it is something that is happening here with the advent of uh, Sky now going on to mm. commercial TV. So I just think it makes it more difficult for people to try to work out what is actually going on. Microphone number one, please. A basic question. Why is toxic Fox News on in every corner of Parliament House, please? That's a good question. Um, is it Fox or Sky? Sky. Um, well, actually, the stuff it's that's on... It's Fox after dark. <laughs> Fox after dark. 
well, well, Sky really sort of took off about oh, sort of 12 or so years ago, I guess. It became, you know, a thing. And, uh, and, and, it, and its genesis was in po political reporting. And I, I must say, actually, Sky during the day is pretty good. I mean, David Spears, Kieran Gilbert, Laura Jays, they're, they're, they're very good journos and they're very objective and they're, you know, it's, it's sky after dark, it's sort of when, when the moon comes up, you know, it goes funny. <laughs> you know, uh, and by that time, we've all sort of pretty much finished for the day, you know, six or seven, we're all filing for our, our, our newspapers and TV bulletins and so forth. So actually, sky during the day has, it's, all, it's almost become an in-house broadcast service because politicians just use it because it's convenient. If they want to say something, often they want their colleagues to know what they're thinking, or, um, or, or they can't be bothered doing a press conference and taking questions, they'll just tiptoe up and do a thing on Sky and then go back to their office. It's, it's almost become like that. It's annoying for the rest of us because, as we saw when this leadership spill was unfolding, people were just texting. Most of it was wrong, but just, you know, both camps were texting the, the journos who were having to fill time on air all day, just talk, talk, talk. Yeah. Oh, I've just heard so-and-so's, you know, defected to the other camp, or this has happened, or this, and it became like this. We were just, we, we all became observers of this as it was being played out on Sky and David and Laura and Kieran and the rest of them were trying to sort of, you know, balance the need to report it you know, before checking it's true and so forth. It, it was quite bizarre, but it's just, it's just a product of the changing media, 24-hour TV. I mean, it's miles ahead and overseas in the US. It's much, much more advanced over there. There is another 24-hour yeah. uh, news channel, ABC News, News 24. The difference is, first, as, <laughs> as Phil said, the, the Sky Channel uh, is essentially, uh, it's, a, it's an echo chamber that operates within Parliament House. So it's very up to date and the journals are on the news. But the other factor is it makes these people, uh, it, it, it makes these people feel important because, because it concentrates so much on federal politics and what's happening in that building. It doesn't have the bandwidth to demonstrate what else is going on in the news worldwide. What, like everyone on the telly is talking about me? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's all about them. It's all about mm -hmm. us. And it just, it, it reflects back to them their own worldview that this is all that matters. Uh, we're out of time. That hour flew by. Um, but I would like to join you all in thanking the three people that I'm sharing the stage with, you know, doing the sort of journalism that we need. The kind of fact-checking, um, objective sort of stuff that in these crazy-ass times we actually have to rely on. So thank you very much for coming and thank you to the panel. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, You've been listening to Phil Khoury, Nikki Sava and Peter Harcher at Antidote 2018. And if you want more from the festival, may I recommend jumping onto our YouTube channel. You'll find a selection of recordings from similarly excellent events. The link's in our show notes. And we'll be back here next week with another podcast, next time with American journalist and author David Nywitt, whose book Alt-America looks at the rise of political extremism in the US. See you then. <laughs>